everybody, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Mike Van Meter Show. And uh, this is your one-stop shop for everything having to do with conservatism. And taking back the United States Congress from all of the people that are destroying our country right now. And we're going to be able to do that. And folks, if unless you've been living under a rock, you know that we have a midterm election coming up here in November. And... Boy, are we getting close, and we have some great candidates here in Virginia. And if you're not from Virginia, you are probably not aware of the fact that Virginia is a pretty conservative state. And we've taken back uh, the House down there in Richmond, Virginia, but we're trying to get uh, our federal seats back. And we have one of the candidates today, Karina Lipsman. She's going to be talking to us. And it's a very, very difficult district to run in. That's the in Northern Virginia is a very left-leaning portion of Virginia, probably the most left-leaning portion of Virginia. And Karina was brave enough to take on that fight and get back uh, our seat, the Republican seat, in that particular district. And I was really pleased that she decided to come on to the podcast. And I've uh, run into Karina a couple of times when I met uh, Governor Yunkin at a door knocking um, uh, festivity and and door knocking uh, campaign uh, a couple of months ago. And then I was at uh, a, a, a community fair here recently and I was walking down the street and my wife said, hey, do you remember that woman that's running for uh, Congress, uh, Karina, the woman from Ukraine. And I said, yeah, Karina Lisman. Well, she's over there. And I walked across the street and sure enough, there was Karina and we had a, a lovely talk. And And I asked her if she would come on to the program and she did. And so here we are. And I'm so excited to have Karina on the program. And she's going to talk to us about you know her background, what motivated her to come into office and what her platform is going to be. And I know you're going to enjoy this. And so Karina, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Mike. I'm really excited to be on the program. Um, you know, thank you so much for sharing your uh, your thoughts and sharing what's going on around Virginia with all of your listeners. I think it's important for folks to be able to really understand um, individuals uh, as they're running for any seat, really. So a little bit about me. I was born in Odessa, Ukraine, uh, when it was still under the Soviet regime. We immigrated to the United States when I was eight years old on a refugee visa. I came with my single mother and my elderly grandparents. We did not speak English, lived in low-income housing, on food stamps in Baltimore City. And my mother was working full-time as a seamstress and then also supplemented her income with uh, being a caregiver. And then on top of that, she would go to community college in the evenings to learn English but then also try to advance her career and earn a certificate in bookkeeping. So I was practically raised by my grandparents. And so we watched Wheel of Fortune and uh, Price is Right together to learn English. Um, But I do remember my first day of school in Baltimore County or Baltimore City rather. And uh, I was completely mortified because all of the kids uh, in my first period class all got up around me, put their right hand on their heart, and began to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And I had no idea what it meant, um, but I knew that it was something really powerful, and I felt it inside of me. So I went through the Baltimore public school system, and when I became 18, I decided to become a U.S. citizen by choice. So I applied to become a citizen. I went through the process, and during my swearing-in ceremony, I recited the most meaningful Pledge of Allegiance of my entire life because I knew in that moment just how fortunate I was to have that opportunity to 
to become a U.S. citizen that many around the world can only dream of. And being a U.S. citizen is also uh, incumbent upon self-sufficiency, right? Um, it's making making uh, a life for yourself, making your own success. Sky's the limit. So I put myself through college in three years with a bachelor's in economics while I was working full-time in the financial industry. Then I switched gears and moved into the defense and intelligence community. Um, I also had to prove myself, so I went back to school and uh, earned a master's in engineering from Johns Hopkins. And then I just resigned from a 14-year career in that world to run for Congress because I've truly lived that American dream, and I want to preserve that dream for everybody. And so you mentioned that Northern Virginia is a pretty blue part of Virginia, and especially the 8th District. And the 8th District is a pretty, pretty tough district. However, it's changed significantly over the last 10 years. It's now almost 47% minority and immigrants. These are communities that I can fully engage with and understand their struggles and life path and be able to be that hope and that dream for them that they can also have the American dream. Look at me, a refugee from Soviet Ukraine is now running for Congress. And I'm also focusing on things that matter to every single person. I'm focusing on kitchen table issues, the economy, getting inflation under control, crime. It has been rampant in our area, supporting our law enforcement officers and getting crime under control because we don't live in Baltimore City. And then, you know, uh, education, making sure that our kids are prepared to be successful in life and teaching them basic skills, reading, writing, math, science. Um, national security is a huge part of my platform because, you know, not only do I have the background and experience, we've seen what's happening in the world. The botched withdrawal in Afghanistan, what's going on right now with Ukraine, uh, potential for China to invade Taiwan, and all of this unrest in the world. And then most importantly, mental health. Mental health is a huge crisis in our country. Um, and we've seen that uh, with the homeless population. We've seen that with addictions. We've seen that with drug and alcohol abuse. We've seen that with um, skyrocketing suicide rates. And that's something that we need to get under control. So these are basic issues that are important that uh, resonate with everybody, regardless whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And I just don't embrace polarizing politics because that's not how politics should be. Politics should be about the people, not about the party. And I truly stand behind that. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And before we came on the podcast, you and I were talking quite a bit about mental health situation here in the United States, not just Northern Virginia, but in the United States in general. And mental health will cascade into a number of other issues like addiction and, and crime and education and uh, homelessness and joblessness and things like that. And I, I know that this is something that's really not talked about a whole lot uh, in the political realm. Uh, I know that one of the reasons why I decided to throw my hat in the ring for the Virginia State Senate is this very issue. And you know what? Let's start off with this, because I know that this is – when you go around the, the state and you talk about issues, mental health is probably not at the top of the list with people. However, when it comes to mental health and addiction, uh, nearly everyone's affected by it. So give me some of your thoughts on 
uh, mental health, um, the crisis as it relates to the Eighth District. Because you're at, for those that aren't familiar with the map of Virginia, the Eighth District is pretty close to the city, you know, Washington D.C. So it's very urban, and I would I would say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that people with significant mental health issues is more prominent in that area than some of the more rural areas of the state. Would you agree with that? Mike, you're 100% right. And so I kind of want to take it back from the beginning, right? Um, in the 1970s, the federal government decided to shut down mental health institutions across the country. And that's where things started in the first place. And so people became homeless. Um, the government thought that people should be able to self-medicate. Well, if you have a serious mental health issue, you're not going to be able to self-medicate um, because it's just, if you're bipolar or if you're schizophrenic or any of that, you're not going to be able to self-medicate. So then people obviously resort to um, violence. They resort to um, being homeless. I mean, it's not even resorting to being homeless and they don't have a choice. Um, and so they become homeless because they can't hold a job because they're not fully there. Um, so they turn to drugs, they turn to crime. Um, and right now, you know, you, we've seen the effects of that in real time because, uh, we see what's going on in San Francisco and you can't walk, you know, two feet without stepping in human, um, feces, or you can't walk two feet without, you know, seeing a needle or, um, you know, having a homeless person try to uh, attack you. And a lot of that has to do with the lack of funding uh, that the government has uh, allocated for these mental health facilities and shelters. Uh, so we talk about the urban areas, which are the affected the most, obviously, 8th District being one of them, because in Clarendon, which is one of the nicer places in Arlington, you walk around and there are tents right in the middle of the city, right in the middle of, you know, Clarendon proper. And right around there are million dollar homes. But we see such a huge homeless population. And some of these people are violent. They're, they're not only harmful to themselves, they're harmful to other people. Mm -hmm. And there's not enough shelters. There's not enough resources there um, to support these people. And it's just a matter of getting them into a safe environment, which right now, you know, because of lack of funding and resources, um, the shelters are usually more dangerous than the streets. And that's why a lot of people end up on the streets versus going to a shelter. And also the resources to provide them the opportunity to get back on track, to be able to uh, get their medication in order, get a job, be self-sufficient. Uh, and these are things that are not being talked about. These are things that the government has not been providing. And we're seeing that with, uh, with crime, um, we've seen that with uh, how many people are in jail. There's at least over 60% of people who are currently in jail. They have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. They don't belong in jail. They just need help. They just need someone to get them back on that right track. And the same goes for hospital beds, right? We have under 20% of hospital beds that are dedicated for mental health patients. That is unacceptable. And all because, you know, the government doesn't provide a subsidy to the hospital um, for mental health beds, uh, which, you know, I think needs to be changed. And that's where we need to solve at the root cause our mental health issue in America. And you know what? And it relates to the crime issue, which I know is a big 
part of your platform. And just by way of background, I was a DC police officer before I went into the FBI. And uh, Karina, Karina and I were talking about what that experience was like. And this was in the mid-1990s. And there was a, a hospital, psychiatric hospital called St. Elizabeth's back then. And it was shut down um, as a result of what Karina was talking about. And I would say, as a police officer, about 80% of my time was spent dealing with people that had significant mental health issues on the street. So it does a couple of things. One, um, it takes me away from dealing with other issues as a police officer. And by the way, I was not trained, nor were any of the police officers trained to deal with these people because we're not social workers. You know, we're police officers. So we don't have the training to deal with the, the mentally um, ill. And when we did deal with them, it was usually because they committed a crime. We were putting them into a facility that was not equipped to deal with them and help them. And so that's not humane. It's not humane for them. It's not safe for us. It's not safe for them. And they're not be getting the retreatment that they need. And then it takes police officers off the street to deal with the other issues that they need to. So uh, I, to me, I think that there needs to be a lot more done in ways of uh, housing for these folks and then um, getting them the mental health that you need. But that kind of segues into the next issue is fighting crime. So I know that's a, a big concern of yours as well. And maybe some thoughts on how you would approach this if elected to the Congress. Sure. And I actually am very proud to say that I've been endorsed by the Police Benevolent Association. All right. And yes, um, very, very proud of that because usually um, they don't, they don't uh, endorse uh, challengers, right? They usually go with the incumbent, but they've seen that the incumbent has not taken on crime in the same way that, um, you know, people should be taking on crime in general. Um, over the last two years, we've had an increase in crime uh, in Northern Virginia, out of all the places, one of the safest areas to be in in the country and we're seeing crime. We see things like hammer attacks. We see things like um, uh, robberies, carjackings. Uh, I, I'm scared to go for a walk as a single female in Arlington. Um, you know, and all of that is because we're not supporting our police officers. Officers are resigning in record numbers mm -hmm. right now. And they don't have a good pipeline of recruitment for the next generation to come on board because it's not a valued profession anymore because we have this whole defund the police movement that's, you know, been, been going on over the last two years and supporting, uh, you know, ostracizing our police officers. So why would they want to go into that field? Why would they want to stay there if they don't feel appreciated and they don't have the resources and tools to be able to do their jobs? And we talk about, you know, how that relates to mental health as well. And you were talking about, you know, police officers not being able to do their jobs if they're dealing with a, um, with someone with disabilities or mental health issues. And, you know, I was uh, fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to the Northern Virginia or the ARC of Northern Virginia, um, which supports, uh, you know, the disabled community. And we were talking mm. about opportunities where police officers, law enforcement officers, can work together with the Northern Virginia ARC and understand, you know, what a bipolar episode looks like. Instead of, you know, just throwing someone in jail, understand that, hey, maybe this is what this looks like. And let me take a step back before I, you know, uh, start harming this person or, you know, use brutal force against them. And that was something both the uh, police uh, officers were receptive to and the um, Northern Virginia ARC were receptive to. 
So, I mean, there's opportunities there to work together with the communities. Um, but it's really supporting and funding our police officers. It's ensuring that they're able to do their job and be out in the community because they are a deterrent from crime occurring. Um, so I 100% support the police. I support everything they do. And I think that we really need to start getting behind them. And um, actually, my opponent um, says the defund the police uh, slogan is silly, yet he's still taking money and endorsements from organizations who overtly support the defund the police movement. So I think that's a bit hypocritical on his end. You know, and something, let me just add to that a little bit. Number one, I think I think that uh, one thing that we can do with the police, you know, I as I mentioned earlier, police officers are not social workers and they're not addiction specialists. They're not mental health professionals. However, there is training. And this is this is maybe one area of agreement that we can have with the other side in this this idea that we, we need to come together and, and find a common solution. And something I would support and see if you support this is that there's a lot of training that I've received over the last couple of years in my graduate program with the Hazel and Betty Ford, pro, uh, Betty Ford Graduate School uh, when it came to addictions and co-occurring disorders, is that there's a lot of training that we can provide police officers in order to identify what these events look like, these mental health events look like, and then how to de-escalate and then know the resources, the proper resources to get people into to get them the help that they need. Um, because jail is not always the answer, but there's training that we can provide police officers. And I think that that's something that we can all agree on. I mean, don't you think? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, you know, and that's the thing is that people don't need to go to jail. Um, you know, they're, they need help. They want, you know, they want to get back to being normal. And, um, you know, those that are affected by, um, mental health or mental illness. Um, and that's where I think, you know, the police officers, either there's always going to be a few bad apples, right? Mm -hmm. But if the majority of police officers, they just want to do their job. They want to keep our community safe. They want to keep our schools safe. They want to keep, um, you know, our neighborhood safe. And so that's where, you know, having the proper training, I think, is crucial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tra training obviously takes funding um, and, you know, takes time away from police officers being on the street. And so that, again, you know, with already a shortage of police officers in this area, you know, giving them the training, but also um, getting more people to join the law enforcement mm -hmm. profession and making it, making it attractive again uh, to be a police officer because people go into that profession, not because of the pay they go in because they truly care about the mission and the mission is to protect our communities. That, that's absolutely correct. And I want to point out to your, your opponent that the defund the police movement by far the communities that have been, negatively impacted the most due to defunding the police are minority communities of which there's a large uh, large number of up in your district in the, the eighth district defunding the police has been very detrimental to minority communities and i don't know how people don't see that this was a bad idea from the very very beginning that if there's issues that need to be dealt with in our policing in america then let's deal with those issues and let's deal with the individuals that that right. do bad things, but to, I, I mean, I'll put it this way. Would it occur to anybody that if you had one, one bad doctor in your local hospital, that you would shut down the entire hospital because of that one doctor? I mean, who in the world would do that? But yet that's what we do with the police. 
Exactly. And it, and it was totally uncalled for. And we're seeing the impacts of it right now. We're seeing it in, um, you know, in all the major cities, crime has gone up by over 40 percent since 2021. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and a bad economy also breeds crime. Right. People are surviving. You talk about how the minority communities um, are affected the most by this because, you know, they, they ju- they're going to go and they're going to commit crimes because they need to survive. They're in flight or fight mode. And so with a bad economy, they're going to go even more, uh, you know, they're going to commit even more crimes because they have to put food on the table. They have to pay bills. Um, and so, so you've just created this whole cycle of destruction uh, versus actually helping these communities that need help the most that um, are suffering already. And now, um, you know, you even have local DAs with their soft on crime policies where, um, Crimes are no longer crimes. They become misdemeanors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, who is that hurting? That's hurting the business owner that's getting vandalized and robbed. That's hurting, um, you know, the, the immigrant community and the minority business owners who are not able to afford to fix that window or um, replenish that merchandise that was stolen. So you, the owners is now on all of these small businesses that are already suffering from, um, from uh, you know, the two-year shutdown of COVID, and you, you, you've now you've now created a huge chaos of just you know uh, of you know crime and uh, and craziness, and so you know it's just everything is tied together, and I think people sometimes forget how much it's actually tied together. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is, and and. I really like your approach to this. And and speaking of security in our communities, let's bump it up a little bit to the national scale because obviously we, we are in some very, very dire times right now. And ironically, a big part of it uh, is happening in the part of the world that you're from, and that being Ukraine. But this, this situation in the Ukraine kind of highlights some issues that we're having when it comes to national security in our, our own country, because uh, we, between China, uh, what's going on in U- Ukraine and some other parts of the world, we're in kind of a tough spot right now. And in my opinion, I think that when it comes to our, our military and overall national security, we're heading in the wrong direction when we need to be gearing up. Um, maybe your thoughts on that. I 100% agree with you. We're definitely going down the wrong path. Um, we're no longer a global leader. People no longer, you know, respect us in the same way that they used to. And I think that, you know, people still look to America as an example uh, and want to uh, lead from, from, you know, the way that America leads. But we have so many crises here at home. I mean, my heart breaks for Ukraine it breaks for the Ukrainian people. I still have relatives and friends that are there. We talk to them every single day and it's mortifying to me what they're dealing with on a regular basis. And the fact that they get up every day and they're wondering if that's going to be their last day um, when they're walking to get food from the grocery store or they're walking their kids to school, will they get shelled? Will they get bombed? And I mean, this is the fear they're constantly living with on a daily basis, but you know, I also don't think that we should be continuing to send billions and billions of dollars to any country. I mean, charity starts at home. We have so many crises here in America that we talked about between homelessness, between the economy, the crime, 
um, our own southern border where, you know, we have massive, massive um, trafficking crises. And a lot of it actually ends up in northern Virginia. And I don't think a lot of people understand that because it is so close to Washington, D.C. We have a huge fentanyl problem here in North uh, you know, right now it's uh, it's being talked about in every single forum that I go to, um, school forums. Uh, I went to a bunch of back-to-school nights where this is an issue and they're trying to get it under control. And it's hard because fentanyl, even the slightest bit, uh, you know, they were saying it's basically you can have a uh, the tip of a pen is all you need to overdose, which is insane. And the way that it's been covering or been covered up you can have it in, look like pop tar, or what are they called? Sweet tarts, um, to where, you know, you don't even know that it's fentanyl. And, uh, the actual, uh, substance is, or, you know, drug is imported from China. Um, and then it's, you know, created into pill form. Um, and so we have the, the drug overdoses in the school system. And then we have the human trafficking. We have the crime and the violence. We have weapons that are coming over the border and no one's stopping them. I personally believe in legal citizenship. I came mm-hmm. here legally. I went through the process. But we need to, you know, make sure that people are coming here the right way and they want to be here because they actually want to be part of our society, not ruin our country. Mm-hmm. So we we need to uh, get our borders under control. We need to secure them. Um, I don't believe in closing our borders because I think immigration is the backbone of our country, but we need to secure them. And that's a difference. Um, and then we also need to provide a clear path to citizenship for those people who actually want to be here the legal way, um, who pay their taxes, who have jobs who um, have learned new language, who want to assimilate into our society, um, because that's why we came here. We came here for freedom and opportunity. That's what America is built on, and we need to get back to that. You know what? I'm glad that you brought that up, because uh, a few episodes ago in this podcast, I talked about open borders and what an issue that is. And I had someone respond to the podcast saying, hey, Mike, you know, you've got it all wrong. You know, what, what's going on? You're in Virginia. You're not a border state. This isn't an issue for you. So why, why are you making a big deal out of this? And I'm glad to hear you say that that's absolutely not true. We, the border crisis is affecting Northern Virginia, whether it's human trafficking, fentanyl, um, terrorism. Well, hell, we, we didn't even talk about that. I mean, the fact is, folks, we don't know who's coming across the border, and we have a right to know who's coming into this border. Just like Karina said, I'm all for um, citizenship and people coming to this country. I, I mean, most, most, if not all of us, are immigrants. Uh, our families are immigrants from some other place to come here. But we have to come here legally, and as a nation, as a sovereign nation, we have a right to know who's coming here, because not everybody's our friend. Um, some people are coming here for good reasons, wanting a better life, and other people are coming here to try to harm us. And um, th- this, when you talk about human trafficking and drugs, it absolutely is a problem in Northern Virginia, because you just mentioned that you're seeing it up there in the 8th District. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it's affecting our children. Mm -hmm. Our children are already affected uh, with the school closings during COVID. And so they already are, you know, on hyper uh, alert for suicide and drug and alcohol abuse and, you know, other issues under their other mental health issues um, because they've been stripped of, you know, 
childhood. They've been stripped of being able to interact with other um, kids and students in the classroom. Um, some kids were graduating without physically being there. I mean, I can't even imagine having two years of your life completely wiped out. Mm-hmm. And how do you actually deal with that? So they turn to they turn to drugs and alcohol, right? And you know, if there's drugs and alcohol readily available because it's being sold on the black market from what's coming over the border, that's what they're going to resort to. And again, you know, with a shortage in police officers, with um, the abundance of uh, drugs in this area, uh, you can easily see how you know how all of this impacts uh, you know the the most vulnerable of our population, which are our children. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And speaking of our children, um, how about education? That's been a hot topic. And if you're lift, listening to this podcast and you're not in Virginia, you you may not be aware that Loudoun County, <laughs> which is in Northern Virginia, uh, it was the epicenter of the whole controversy uh, with uh, parents and in, being involved in school and the talk of the FBI following, you know, parents at uh, school board meetings, and et cetera. It was in this area. I know it's not your district per se, but it's very close to your district. And so that ed- education has been a big, big thing here in Northern Virginia. So what are your, some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. So for me, it's, um, you know, education is extremely important. That's why people come to this country. That's why we came to this country. I went through the Baltimore public school system, but I also have a master's um, from Johns Hopkins. So Education is what separates America from a lot of other countries. And having that knowledge is what's going to set you up for success. So I believe that parents have rights. Parents should know what's going on in the hallways and what's being taught in the classroom and not being shut out from that. And uh, Governor Youngkin has done a great job of giving parents their voice mm-hmm. uh, and having them be involved. And that, I think that's, that's exactly what we should be doing is students, Teachers and parents should all be working together, not against each other. And I fully support uh, transparency in the in the school systems, so that parents are aware of what's going on. I also support school choice. It's great for students. It's great for parents. It's great for teachers. It gives healthy competition. Just like parents are looking to find the best school for their child, so are teachers. Teachers are looking for the best place to work. And so having that healthy competition is huge. And the money following the student allows parents to make the decisions that they need to make in order to be able to set their child for success because they know what their child needs the best. And, you know, your zip code should not have to determine your future. And then education in general, teaching kids basic skills to set them up for success. And I'm also a huge, huge, huge proponent of not necessarily going down a four-year path, but trade and uh, technical schools and vocational schools. Uh, These are areas where we can put our kids into high-paying quality jobs to use their hands and become entrepreneurs. You look at plumbers, you look at electricians, you look at carpenters, you look at um, uh, lawn care. Uh, you know, any one of these trades. And these people are making six figures or more. They're starting their own businesses. They're able to retire and live a lot of luxury and put their kids through school and do all of these things that, you know, um, 
you might not be able to do if you just go straight for a four-year degree because it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think destigmatizing that and encouraging kids that, hey, maybe college isn't right for you. Maybe you want to go down a different track and make that available to the students uh, so that they can have that opportunity. And then that goes to, you know, the community has a public-private partnership between small businesses and the school system so that you can have uh, students start earning uh, or start start getting uh, job experience and being exposed to working uh, while earning community service or earning money or having experience once they go into a, a field. Well, they maybe they didn't think that they were the right, you know, the right fit for college, but they started working at a masonry and decided like, hey, this is actually something really cool and I enjoy doing and this is something that I'd like to pursue as a career path. So having that opportunity for students, I think is super important. And um, I I absolutely support um, having that option for for everybody. Yeah, I think we don't emphasize that enough. I mean, college is not everybody. And we actually don't want everybody to go to college. There are so many jobs that are out there that are the skilled jobs that are vital to our community and to our economy. And we don't emphasize that enough. I think there's just this big push for everybody needs to go to college. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I think that you're absolutely right about that. Now, um, as we get ready to wrap up, because I know you've been gracious with your time, and I know you have another commitment here shortly, but I I just wanted to um, allow you to just let the audience know about the the race, because we're, uh, what, about 40, is it about 40 days now before the election? Getting pretty close to it. It's 36 days as of today, 35 tomorrow. (laughs) Wow. How is it looking, and what's the feel? As you go out and you talk to people, what are people telling you? And what's the general sort of temperature out there right now? It's been fantastic. We've got so much momentum. I've been all over the district, up and down. The uh, My opponent's nowhere to be seen. Um, he's only attended, you know, one or two uh, meetings or forums that we had put on by civic associations. And every single event that I've gone through to, People are looking for an alternative. They're looking for change. They want someone different. Um, my incumbent or my opponent has been in the, in the political um, arena for his entire life. I'm someone who's a newcomer. I've never been in politics. I'm a business-oriented, common-sense, moderate person who comes in and is a problem solver. It, and I keep saying it's about the people. It's about what the people want. Every single person should be represented, whether they vote for you or not. And I think that's the that's how politics used to be. And I want to get back to that. I want to be able to have a town hall at least once a month where I bring to um, to the people what's happening in Congress. And then we take the opportunity to vote on it together to talk about it, how what the impacts look like. And then I take that back to Congress and then we vote on it together. And the same goes for any challenges or issues we have here, taking those straight into the halls of Congress. It's not about the party. It's not about, uh, you know, any single person. It's about people and being able to represent their voices. Uh, And that's something that's been, you know, resonating with a lot of folks because, uh, you know, my opponent votes straight down party lines, whether that impacts the district poorly or, you know, uh, favorably. He doesn't really care. Uh, and I want to be a different kind of politician. And 
I want to bring change to our district. And I think people are in the, uh, are amenable to that, especially because we're not embracing polarizing politics. We're focused on things that impact every single person, regardless of your political affiliation. Everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to uh, have money in their pocket. And everyone wants to have uh, make sure their kids have a great education and that we as a country are safeguarded. And this is this is something that holds true across the board. So that's the message that we've been running on, and we've been getting a lot of positive feedback from that. Well, I don't know how anybody can argue with anything. <laughs> Reach out to me if you disagree <laughs> with anything that Karina just said. <laughs> well, folks, um, the website, if you want to uh, contribute to Karina or learn a little bit more about what she's about, it's Karina for Congress, K-A-R-I-N-A for Congress, and that's spelled out. KarinaForCongress.com. Karina, is there any uh, other social media that you'd like to throw out there or ways that the voters can contact you if if need be? Uh, Definitely. You can get to most of my social media uh, through the website, but uh, my handle on Instagram and Facebook are KarinaForCongress. And on Twitter, it's Karina Congress, because Twitter does not allow you too many characters. <laughs> <laughs> Darn Twitter, I tell you. Is there anything, okay, so is there anything uh, that you'd like that we didn't talk about here that you think is important for people to know about you or you'd like to, to emphasize before we close up for the night? Uh, just that, you know, it, it's all about common sense. It's all about practical solutions to things. It's focusing on the root cause of things. It's not focusing on parties. It's focusing on people and their needs. And that's what politicians' job is. Um, and that's where politicians need to be. They need to have uh, the right approach uh, to why they want to go into office in the first place. And as a public servant, you're there to serve the people only. You're not there to serve your party. You're not there to serve your own special needs or the special interest groups. You're there to serve the people. And I want to be that person. And it just starts with one person um, to bring common sense back into Congress. Oh, that is so well said and so true. And and I wish you the best of luck, uh, 35 days out. Uh, but who's counting? But we are. We're 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 uh, behind you 100%. And we're so glad that you took the time to, to join us tonight. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mike. I really enjoyed being here. <laughs> we I, Really, I, and I look forward to having you on. Maybe we can have you on again, too, before the uh, uh, campaign or before the election occurs in November. Um, so if you come back, we'd love to have you. And certainly, if elected, great. we'd like to have you on. When elected, Mike, when elected, always stay positive. That's right. Well, I, you know what? Guys, we can do it. We can, The tide is turning. And uh, thank you all for listening. And, and support Karina where you can. Go to her website, KarinaForCongress.com. And we look forward to seeing you guys again. This is Mike Van Meter. And it's been a pleasure having you here tonight. You know, check out my Facebook site. And that's the Mike Van Meter Show. And follow my campaign as well. Mike Van Meter for Virginia, running for the 33rd Senate District seat here in Virginia. And we'll be talking with you soon.